The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. John Fesco. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful that you give us this moment in our busy day to pause and to reflect upon your word. We pray that you would give us insight, that you would give us humility, uh, that you would enable us to submit to the authority of your word, and in doing so, that you would create in us uh, a new heart, uh, one uh, continually disposed towards your grace, one continually disposed uh, and bent towards your will, uh, one that would also cause great praise, thanksgiving, and, uh, and uh, the sacrifice of praise upon our lips to continually flow forth for you, our triune God. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, as you know, uh, the uh, faculty has uh, been given the task this semester of uh, giving chapel addresses that come from Paul's second epistle to the church at Corinth. And so this morning, I want to look specifically at verses 20 and 21 of Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5. But for the sake of context, what I'd like to do is just begin reading from verse 16. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Second Corinthians chapter 5, and I'll begin reading in verse 16. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. For now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Uh, It was a number of years ago, uh, and I was not here, just for the sake of context, where I was lecturing on the doctrine of justification in a seminary classroom. And uh, as you can well imagine, uh, in lecturing upon this uh, crucial doctrine of the Christian faith, I talked about what it means to be justified by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, receiving the imputed righteousness of Christ, his perfect suffering on our behalf, and his perfect law-keeping on our behalf. And at the end of the lecture, after what I thought was a fairly clear lecture and one that seemed to be loaded with biblical truth, I had a student raise his hand and ask, Professor, I just fail to see the practical implications of this doctrine. Um, It took every fiber in my being not to say that that is the dumbest question I think I have ever heard in my entire life. I refrained from doing that and, uh, you know, I said, well, you know, to me it seems to be the most imminently practical doctrine that we could ever know. And he says, well, how so? I said, well, one of these days you have to stand before a holy and righteous judge 
who will determine whether or not you are bound for heaven or hell, uh, to me that seems to be the most practical of things. Um, so uh, he was a bit chagrined, I think, when uh, I explained that, and I did it kindly and patiently, mostly. Um, and uh, so there there's always seems to be this penchant, this, uh, you know, this big question uh, that any time that a discussion seems to be a little bit too theoretical, that, uh, well, what are the practical implications? Because in the end, it only matters if it's practical. Maybe that's something that is endemic in us as Americans, as we like things to work, it has to be practical. Well, I reluctantly, reluctantly uh, title this message a practical benefit of imputation. I don't want to imply that things are only worthwhile if they have practicality to them, but I want us to at least explore briefly uh, this one dimension of the doctrine of imputation, and in particular the reconciliation that comes through Christ, in terms of a practical benefit that it brings, uh, a pastoral application, if you will. This is surely not the only one. There are many practical implications for the doctrine of justification and more specifically, uh, the doctrine of the imputed righteousness of Christ. But here, it's the question uh, as to how do we evaluate things in this world? By what standard do we evaluate uh, our brothers and sisters in the church, by what standard do we evaluate the things that we encounter in this life? We may not realize it, but at the core of how we evaluate things in this life lies the doctrine of the imputed righteousness of Christ, as well as the imputation of our sin uh, to Christ. And in what way does it lie at the center? Well, let's find out. As we look here uh, at the latter half of chapter 5, uh, as Paul writes here in his letter to the, 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 the Corinthians, his second letter to the Corinthians, a major theme that he develops is that of reconciliation. Reconciliation. I think that one of the reasons that the Apostle Paul was working here on the subject of reconciliation is because there's a sense in which he was unreconciled, not through his own doing, but rather he was unreconciled to the Corinthians. You see, they were somewhat enamored, attracted to, and uh, perhaps even uh, a bit under the spell of what the Apostle Paul calls the super apostles. Uh, these were the, the certain individuals uh, who were very impressive in their ministry. And he calls them as such super apostles in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5. And so because the Corinthians were so attracted to these very impressive apostles who had all sorts of credentials and all sorts of uh, you know, accomplishments, they looked at Paul uh, as being somewhat unimpressive. Uh, and therefore, that led them to reject a lot of the things that the apostle Paul was saying. They were in a state of unreconciliation. And so Paul says there in verses 18 and 19 that well, God reconciled sinners to himself through Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Moreover, Christ gave the apostles the message of reconciliation and a ministry of reconciliation. And so here the apostle Paul is calling them. He's saying to the Corinthians, be reconciled unto me. You are not looking at me Fairly, you are not judging my ministry, my God-given, Christ-ordained, spirit-empowered ministry. 
not judging it aright. And so this is why he was calling upon them to be reconciled to him. In the eyes of the Corinthians, Paul was essentially insignificant. We don't have much testimony as to what Paul looked like, his demeanor, his disposition, except for, of course, the, the letters that we write. He, he wrote. But in one uh, work from the ancient world called the Acts of Paul and Thecla, we hear the following description of the Apostle Paul. A man small in size, bald-headed, bandy-legged, bow-legged, well-built, so I guess he was a stout man, with eyebrows meeting, rather long-nosed, full of grace. You know, so it's kind of like that last statement makes up for all of the other stuff. You know, it wasn't good-looking, but he was full of grace. You know, in other words, he just wasn't very impressive. I suspect he didn't meet the Greek ideals of what somebody invested with authority should look like. And so the Corinthians looked upon Paul as being somewhat weak and largely judging him according to externals. He's unimpressive. He goes on and on about various things, but he's not impressive as these other apostles, these super apostles, as Paul calls them. But yet notice what he says here in verses 16 and 17. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. See, built into Paul's uh, exhortation to call the Corinthians to judge him fairly and uh, rightly is his own former misjudgment of Christ. He says, I judged Christ according to the flesh. What is it that changed Paul's view of Christ? Why did he look at Christ one way and then after he looked at him a different way? The answer that Paul gives lies in the prophet Isaiah, in the latter half of Isaiah, verse chapters 40 through 66. Because he says here, therefore, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. I purposely leave off the indefinite article because the indefinite article isn't there in the Greek. And I say that it's new creation rather than a new creation because I think with the insertion of the indefinite article, it gives the impression that Paul is simply saying, if anybody is in Christ, well then you're a new creature. Now in one sense, that's certainly true. We're raised from death to life and we walk in the newness of life. But I don't think Paul is addressing our regeneration here, but rather he is addressing the... um, the, the, the shift in redemptive history, Isaiah's long prophesied new heavens and new earth that he talks about at the end of his massive prophetic book in the, the closing chapters of Isaiah 65 and 66. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is new creation, he is new heavens and earth. Which means that the old has passed away and the new is here. 
The new heavens and earth is here if anyone is in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, you step into the eschaton. You step into the new heavens and the new earth. Which means your former way of evaluating things, your worldly way of judging things, your sinful estimation of things in this world, your brothers and sisters, uh, your, your fellow man, is done away with. What caused Paul to reconsider Christ was the fact that Christ opened his eyes, ushered him into the new heavens and earth, and showed him that Jesus was no simple carpenter hung upon a a brigand's cross, uh, that he was essentially a criminal crucified, but rather he recognized him as the Lord of glory, the suffering servant. Isaiah's suffering servant from chapter 53, the suffering servant who breaks the bonds and the curse of the covenant, ends the exile and ushers in the new heavens and the earth. Paul no longer saw a crucified criminal. He saw the Lord of glory. He no longer evaluated Christ according to the flesh, according to external appearances, but rather evaluated him through the new eyes of faith given to him sovereignly by Christ through the Spirit. And it's in this way that God reconciled Paul to himself. And so what Paul is saying here is he's saying is that if you judge me by externals, in contrast with these super apostles, you're judging me as I used to judge Christ. You're judging me, you're evaluating me according to the flesh, according to the sin-fallen standards of this world that looks to the externals of things, that looks to the outward appearance and not at all to the substance and content and heart of a man, or in this particular case, the Christ-ordained, God-given ministry of reconciliation. And so what Paul is saying is, if you are to be reconciled to me, you have to understand how God has reconciled us to him. How has he done so? He says this in verses 20 and 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be uh, sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God of God. It's the doctrine of imputation, that which lies at the heart of Isaiah 53. And Paul draws upon this complex, not only Isaiah's new creation, but indeed I think you could argue the whole book of Isaiah, but especially here concepts that we find in Isaiah 53. He will make many to be accounted righteous, the prophet says. And not only will he make many to be accounted righteous, those whom Isaiah identifies as sinners, but he will also be numbered with the transgressors, and he shall bear their sin. Language evocative of the Day of Atonement with the scapegoat bearing Israel's sins away. But now it is no longer an animal that takes away Israel's sins, but rather it is the suffering servant. It is the Messiah. It is Jesus. And as Luther called it, this glorious exchange where Christ bears our sin and God accredits it to him and he bears it as well as with the penalty. And then we receive through imputation Christ's merit his obedience, his perfect suffering, so that we can enter into the presence of God, no longer live in exile, and be reconciled unto him. 
and indeed step into the new creation, the new heavens and earth. The act of God's immeasurable grace through the regenerative work of the Spirit uh, uh, propelled Paul out of a state of wrath and condemnation and set him into the new creation where he was breathing the very air, uh, infused, if you will, with the Holy Spirit. And it's this that caused Paul to reevaluate everything in his life. And it's from this vantage point through the lens of Christ that Paul was judging things rightly, not according to the standards of this world, but rather according to Christ. So at the core, you could say, or at least at the core of reconciliation, at the core of properly evaluating things in this world lies the doctrine of imputation, the glorious exchange, how God reconciled us to himself. So that naturally leads us to the question, and I think it's a very relevant question, is how do we evaluate others in this world? You know, one of the things I suspect that all of us to a certain extent, but I think most of you or many of you for, as seminarians, as you look beyond and you begin to think as you approach graduation or even perhaps as you, as you get ready to start your, your seminary uh, you know, uh, adventure, is you say, well, what will things look like when I'm done? I remember one student, I won't mention the name or when it was, but in graduation we hold it in a large church and said, this is what my church is going to look like. I thought, well, maybe. But I can remember being in seminary and one day being invited to a breakfast of all places where um, the owner offered free breakfast to anybody who came. It was 6 o'clock in the morning, so you really had to be holy to be up at that hour. And it was free breakfast, and the owner of the restaurant had asked a minister to lead a Bible study in Romans. And as I sat there eating my free pancakes, um, a wall behind me of theological books was for sale. It was the strangest restaurant I'd ever been in in that respect. But I couldn't help but think as many of what we would consider some of the lowest class of people in this world sat there eating their food, listening to somebody expound Paul's epistle to Rome and explain the gospel, I thought as I sat there, here is the kingdom of God. Here is the kingdom of God in humility and in low estate. I'm not saying that if you have a big church, you're doing something wrong. But I am saying, be cautious as to how you evaluate things in this world. Things aren't always as they seem. And only through the imputed righteousness of Christ and the reconciliation that comes through him can we rightly evaluate things in this world. May we not judge things according to the flesh, but may, may we always judge things according to to the spirit of Christ and according to the gospel, that which has reconciled us to God and God to us. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks for you are merciful, bringing that reconciliation through the work of your son, long ago promised that he made many to be accounted righteous and himself was numbered with the transgressors bearing our sin. We give thanks and pray that you would reform the way that we evaluate things in this world. May we not judge or evaluate according to the flesh, but always according to the
the Spirit and the Spirit of Christ and your gospel. We pray and ask these things in his name. Amen. You're dismissed. Copyright 2015, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.